0: We'll be praying for Pastor Denius' mother She's 97 years old and she went through a significant uh, surgery yesterday and thankfully the surgery went well and she's recovering well but still at that age just as they care for her and so be praying for the entire family and that's where uh, Pastor Don is this morning and so um, when he called me uh, yesterday and uh, said that I would be Uh, speaking, um, I decided that I would probably need to adapt something that I've uh, sort of prepared and done before, so I wanted to adapt what I was uh, planning to share in the New Horizons adult Bible community that I teach. A while ago, I got a good question from someone in the class asking me basically about the assurance of salvation and uh, the idea, I wonder how many of you have heard the phrase of once saved. Always saved? And that's an important, important question. But understanding it in a right way is an important matter too. Once saved, always saved. When I was very early in my own Christian life, I had helped some friends uh, move. They were moving to a different town, they were moving to a different city. And the mom in the family gave me a little New Testament, and I was very early in my Christian life, gave me a little New Testament. And in it, she inscribed the reference from the New Testament of Philippians 1:6. And I looked it up, and it said, confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion for the day of Christ Jesus. And that was very heartening to me to know that now that I had started out in the Christian life, and more importantly, now that God had started a work in me that he was going to see it through. He was going to hold me fast and carry it to completion. And that's really the heart of what this saying is trying to summarize, that once a person is saved, they will always be saved, and they will end up saved at last. Not every denomination, not every stream of Christianity believes that. There are other Bible passages filled with warnings that can look like they point a different direction, and we'll talk a little bit about that this morning. But we believe as a congregation, and many, much of Christianity does believe that once saved, always saved. But why should we believe that this is true? What about people, some of them kind of noteworthy lately, a couple, a few, who turn away from Christianity and abandon the faith? What does it mean to say once saved, always saved in light of situations like that? Or what about those who claim to be Christians and they say they've been saved but who just never seem to live a changed life, never really seem to be devoted to following Christ and walking with Him? Can a real Christian lose his or her salvation? What does it mean to say, once saved, always saved, and to get it right? These are the questions that are addressed in the doctrine that is often called the eternal security of the believer. The eternal security of the believer, that once a person has believed in Christ for salvation, they're secure, they're going to end up saved on the last day and to consider this doctrine this teaching more carefully we're going to take a look at one key passage in particular first peter chapter one verses three to five part of what was read earlier for the scripture reading but this is really important truth for your own assurance of salvation but let me say also for the people that you care about in your lives for the people that you love in your lives who profess to be believers in jesus too For us as a church, as we aim to do authentic, real evangelism, where we're not just putting notches on our belt for some self-serving reasons, but we really care about where people are spiritually for eternity. It's a really crucial, important doctrine. And so the Apostle Peter says in this passage, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. There's a hint already. The believer is given inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Earthly inheritance most certainly can kind of do all of those things, but not a heavenly one. And then he says, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. So it's being protected. Your heavenly assets, so to speak, your heavenly rewards, that inheritance is being kept in heaven for you. So it's exceedingly secure. But what I want to focus on is what he says in verse 5. Kept in heaven for you. Who's the you? Those who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. And I want to just kind of change the order of the phrases just a little bit and focus on three key ideas that this passage, and really this verse, teaches us this morning. First of all, Peter says unmistakably that believers are kept or shielded are guarded by the power of of God. That's remarkable and important. Secondly, believers are kept by the power of God, what's the next phrase, through faith. And then thirdly, believers are kept by God's power through faith all the way for final salvation. The salvation that's ready to be revealed it hasn't been fully manifested yet. But's ready to be manifested, ready to be revealed in the last day. So I want to focus on those three ideas. First of all, believers are kept, guarded, shielded by the power of God. And to see that, a few key passages. So turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. And maybe if you've never noted this or marked this in your Bible before, this would be a good time, a good morning to do that. The Gospel of John, chapter 6, beginning in verse 37. And Jesus is talking about his work as Savior. And he says this. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up the last day. Jesus says there, My mission on life on earth is not my own. God has commissioned me. He's given me his will. He's given me his mission. And that he has given me certain people, believers, to be saved. And he says, I am going to make sure that all that he has given to me, none of them won't make it. None of them won't end up saved. All that he has given to me, I will raise up at the last day kept by God's power. In this case, God the Son. Now that is exceedingly reassuring to me. If I'm a believer, then I am one of those whom God has given to Jesus, and Jesus is committed and commissioned to make sure that I make it to heaven, that I am one of those raised up in the last day. But there's a passage in the Gospel of John that I think, if possible, is even a little bit stronger still. This time John chapter 10 verses 27 through 30. Jesus again is describing his own uh, mission and ministry. And he says in John 10:27, "My sheep, not everybody, are the sheep of Jesus. But my sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. There's a lot right there. If you're really Jesus' sheep, you follow him as shepherd. But it says in verse 28, I give them eternal life, and then what? And they shall never perish. Once Jesus gives someone eternal life, the promise attached is, they shall never perish. There's no scenario described here in one of the sheep given to Jesus ends up perishing. And then he says, no one can snatch them. I think the King James had plucked them out of my hand. Kept by the power of God, God the Son. They'll never perish and no one can snatch them out of my hand. And then he says, my Father who has given given them to me is greater than all, no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one, including in this mission of never allowing a believer to be snatched out of their hand. So if you're a believer in Jesus, Jesus says, no one can snatch you out of my hand. No Satan, no accuser, no demon, no opponent, no enemy, no illness, no circumstance, nothing can do that. And then he adds, and my father, no one can snatch them out of his hand. And I and my father are one, including in this. Now, again, I know there are passages that seem to point the other direction, but in my mind, these and other, many other passages in the New Testament make it clear that ultimately, once a person is saved, they will always be saved, and they will end up being saved because of God's work, God's activity. Spurgeon said he began to love us in eternity past, and he's going to continue to love us through eternity future. That's the basis for this gloriously important and assuring and comforting doctrine that once you're saved, you'll always save, that if he's begun a good work in you, He will carry it it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So that's the first thing and the foundational thing for us to notice and to think about together this morning. But it is also crucial to notice what is said next in Peter's sentence. Because he says that believers are kept or guarded or shielded by the power of God. That's an infinite almighty power but that happens through faith so we have to ask the doctrine is called the eternal security of the believer that is someone who has really believed in jesus someone has put their faith in jesus it's not the eternal security of the church attender it's not called the doctrine of the eternal security of kind of the spiritually interested it's called the eternal security of the believer. As we return to 1 Peter chapter 1, look at the kind of persons that he's talking about, described first uh, in chapter uh, in verse 1, to God's elect, God's chosen one. And then he says in verse 2: who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood those are the people that he's talking about in this assuring verse in verse 5 and then remember what he said in verse 3 in his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope so he's talking about born again they've experienced the new birth people born again believers in Jesus as we have tried to teach before when conversion really happens, someone hears the claims of the gospel. They hear that they're a sinner needing a savior. They hear, most of all, that Jesus is Lord and Savior. What He accomplished at the cross for our forgiveness and our atonement, and what it what it means that He was risen from the dead as Lord of everybody, everywhere, and returning judge one day. So that those who confess the Lord Jesus, if you believe, confess Jesus is Lord, Romans 10:9 then you'll be saved. That's all that Peter has in mind when he's talking about believers who are kept by the power of God. People who've come to sincere repentance and faith. That means, once again, that is absolutely critical that we understand what the Bible means when it talks about true and saving faith. A theme that is really important to me because I see so much distortion, including in the evangelical church, churches Bible-believing like ours today. We were reminded last week, it was sort of a side point, but in the sermon about Rahab, there's such a thing as false faith that isn't really saving. James 2 makes that point very clear. There's a way of believing, there's a way of agreeing with certain things religiously and saying, yeah, I think that's right, yeah, I think that's true. That isn't saving faith. A faith that doesn't produce works, as we were reminded last week from James 2, is called in that chapter, dead, barren, and useless. So realize, the New Testament says it in many places, that there's such a thing that's called from outward appearances... Faith. It looks like someone has believed, but it's not genuine, it's not true, it's not authentic, and it's not saving. And so we have to understand when the Bible talks about saving faith, what does it mean? And here to me I came across, and I can't remember if I've shared it before, but came across very recently on a really good book on Bible theology that says this definition for faith. Biblical faith is belief or trust in the divine word, in God's word, including especially the promise of the gospel, which generates loyalty to the God of the covenant promise. In other words, true faith is belief and trust in the word and promise of God as it comes to us in the gospel that Christ will be our Savior. In the fullest sense of that word and that idea and I've used the term before it came from Jonathan Edwards Christ is going to be my Happifier he's going to be the one who's going to make me perfectly and finally happy and we say that because that's what every human being deeply and ultimately wants that's just we're wired for that we want to be happy the great mistake we can make is looking for happiness from the wrong sources and from the wrong places. And that's why, beginning in the Garden of Eden, humankind started to look other places. Can't trust God and God's plan about that whole fruit of the tree. So I'm not going to trust God, so I'm not going to obey God. He's not going to hapify me. I'm going to have to look somewhere else. And that is exactly the pattern of temptation and falling into temptation that gets replayed again and again in people's lives. But the gospel comes to us and says look if you trust in Jesus he's the only one who can cancel your sin and guilt and your sin and guilt is going to be the thing that ruins you on the final day of last judgment. He'll hapify you. It'll bring blessings in this life but most importantly it will bring everlasting and perfect blessing in the life and age to come. Once a person really, truly believes that word, puts their faith in that promise from God that Jesus is the only true Savior and hapifier, that trust generates the loyalty. Then I'm going to stick with him. I'm going to follow his way. If the loyalty isn't there, then whatever our profession of faith, and for whatever reasons we make it, It's not really trust, it's not really faith, and it's not really saving. Ultimately, even faith is a gift from God, and we don't have time to turn to those passages. But it is a gift that He gives by means of His Word, centered in the Gospel, blessed by the Holy Spirit. Faith comes from hearing, hearing the message, the message about Christ. That is so important. Faith at the very start and faith every step of the way is generated by hearing the message, so this is who Jesus is. So this is what he promises. So this is what he does. So this is what he will do. So this is how I can count on him. And story after story of Jesus and passage after passage in the Bible, the whole point is to proclaim and present Christ so, that having forsaken trusting him in the Garden of Eden, we get our mind straight again, we repent profoundly. I'm going to trust him again, and I'm going to start following him again. And the loyalty that we lost is regained, and we begin to follow him. So, the Apostle Paul agrees with Peter and says what he says about the blessings of salvation to those who believe and continue to believe, because in a passage like Colossians 1, verse 21, Paul says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind as shown by your evil behavior. What an accurate summary, honestly, of the unbeliever. Alienated from God, Enemies in your minds, and it was expressed by your evil behavior. That was once. And let me just take a minute to say, as a pastor and as someone who's been a Christian a pretty long time, if I interact with people and it's just on a general, vague, spiritual, religious terms, I don't get much opposition at all. And everyone's like, hey, preacher, nice to meet you, nice to know you, or something like that. But whenever it moves to you really. In any way, however I say it, you really are not right with God, and you're a rebel against Him. You need to repent of that and find forgiveness and start to follow Christ, and Christ alone is the way of salvation, and if you don't turn in the ways that I'm describing, you will face and experience a deserved, everlasting judgment. Guess what? It's not any longer great to spend time with you, preacher. There is an animosity, and you, many of you, have experienced in your families where you can talk about almost anything, but as soon as it starts to go towards Christ and His unique claim, enemies in your mind, and it's expressed in the behavior too. But now, Paul says, verse twenty-two, He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through the death to present you holy in His sight. Without blemish and free from accusation. But then, verse 23 if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. So, Paul is saying the same thing. Yes, we're kept by the power of God, and he begins a good work and he'll bring it to completion, but he does it. Provided we continue in our faith, our trust that leads to loyalty to Jesus Christ. If the loyalty and allegiance aren't present in a person's life, then that means the trust and the faith aren't present in that person's life. This is what is so often missing when it comes to understanding the saying, once saved, always saved. What I find is missing is a robust enough and full enough understanding of what really happens according to the New Testament when a person is once saved. The second part doesn't work if the first part isn't real. So the always saved doesn't work if the once saved isn't described and defined the way the New Testament describes it. Born again new creation, begin to walk in newness of life, obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Those are all New Testament passages that describe what happens when a person is once saved. So if you fill that phrase with all the meaning that the New Testament gives, then it is abundantly and gloriously and importantly true. Once saved, always saved. But don't kid yourself. If once saved, and I was talking to someone, and I never share these illustrations. If you could ever possibly guess uh, who I mean, I was talking from someone really from another town who was traveling through, knew about South, etc. And uh, I asked him eventually because he wanted to talk about different things about his faith story. Uh, his testimony, and he's like, oh, yeah, I got saved. And then he said, yeah, I was at a camp, and uh, the the speaker was saying that if you didn't trust Jesus, that you'd go to hell, but Jesus died for my sins. So, yeah, I did that. And then he went on, and he said, and then there was nothing. There was nothing God-related. There was nothing Jesus-related in the rest of his story. But have no fear, Pastor Doug. I got saved. That is not uncommon in our circles. That idea and that emaciated version of what saved means is not uncommon. And then we try to glom on always saved. That doesn't work. You've got to mean what the Bible means in the first part of the phrase if you're going to hang on wonderfully and gloriously to the second part of the phrase too. But I do want us to say that it does mean the third thing as well. And I wish I had more time because then we're going to catch up with this in New Horizons. Some of those passages, Hebrews 6, one of them, where it looks like someone's saved for sure and then they don't end up finally saved. And the description in Hebrews 6 of what can happen to a person and how much they can seemingly experience and not end up being saved is pretty striking. But just as a preview, and again, we'll get to this in... Uh, New Horizons and maybe another time when I come to teach. Think of Judas. Judas was right among them. Judas worked miracles at the other apostles. Judas was really in close, close contact to the kingdom of God because he was close, close contact with the king. And Judas was the son of perdition, the man destined to being lost. These things are profounder than often we like to think. But the third thing is, Believers are kept by God's power, but they're kept in connection with a sustained trust and allegiance and loyalty to Jesus. But then it is true, they are kept all the way until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. I want to remind you, as wonderful as the present blessings of salvation are, forgiveness of the sin, Holy Spirit in our life, God as our Father, the fellowship of believers, the wisdom of His Word, all of these wonderful, wonderful blessings of salvation, in a very, very real and important sense, our salvation hasn't been manifested yet. It is going to be way, way better than this. It is going to be perfect and full and final, shalom, everything the way it's supposed to be. Revelation, the last chapters give these beautiful descriptions of what it's going to be like in the new heavens and the new earth. And so if you've truly trusted in Jesus and you've been born again, you are being kept by the power of God and no matter what comes into your life and no matter what assails you, you are going to arrive on heaven's shore. All the way for the salvation, it's right ready now. There's no tweaking that needs to be done, Peter says. It's ready to be revealed at the right time, at the last time. That is the final inheritance that we look forward to so practically speaking as we turn to application this morning for the sake of your own soul and for the sake of those that you love and have had and continue to have some kind of spiritual impact upon why wouldn't you do what Peter calls you to do in another place that we'll see in a moment and make your calling and election that is your salvation sure why not make sure about it you know to be honest what's challenging as a pastor is so much of the time this question seems to be raised by people they don't want to really truly deeply follow christ they want me to give them the minimum daily requirement of righteousness and religion that they can get by on still get into heaven and still live for themselves that's really what it feels like about themselves and sometimes about others why would we hang out on the edge and on the border not really knowing if God's begun a good work in us or not not really knowing whether or not we were saved First Thessalonians 1.4 Paul says to the Thessalonians I know that God has chosen you and you want to say Paul how in the world can you know that God is elected that God is saved those Thessalonians people. And if you read the rest of the chapter, what's the answer? Because your lives profoundly changed. Not perfectly, not forever, not always. Well, yeah, forever, but not always. But truly, their lives changed. And so Paul says, I know that God has chosen you. Go to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 to 11. And with this, we're going to have to move to a close. 2 Peter, same author, the second letter he wrote. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith. First of all, notice the phrase, make every effort. There's the world and the flesh and the devil all pushing the other way. So you're going to have to work at this. But it's God who's ultimately at work in you, Philippians 2.13. Be growing, be blossoming in virtues. Add to your faith, goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. That's what I should have heard from that young man's testimony. Not that, oh yeah, I got saved in zilch. This is the description and the story of a real believer. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they'll keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then, verse 10, Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling, your election, sure, certain. For if you do these things that he's just described, you'll never stumble. You'll never finally fall, and you will receive a rich welcome into the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is impossible for me to believe that deep down, a spirit-indwelt person doesn't want to just barely limp inside, go around the pillar, embarrassed and... uh, Wouldn't you want a rich welcome (laughs) into the kingdom of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? If you want that and work with fear and trembling, Philippians 2, for that, you'll receive that. And in that process, you'll make your calling and election sure. And tell your kids that. Tell your grandkids that. Don't teeter on the edge. Make your calling and election sure. The, pat, the church that I pastored before, when someone was coming for baptism and membership, one of the requirements, one of the conditions that was described, you'd have to believe the doctrinal statement, you had to commit to the... But one of the things was evidence of having been born from above. Evidence that you've been born again that was a echo of what we're talking about here not that we're perfect not by a long shot but we are changed we are people of faith faith that shows itself in a primary loyalty to Jesus Christ when that's true what was true for the Philippians is true for us God who begins a good work in us will carry it through or as Peter has written to the believers of his day, you too will be kept and guarded by the power of God. You shall never perish through faith for the end time salvation that any moment is going to be revealed. In other words, dear believer, believer in Jesus, Christ will hold you fast. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for that amazing, glorious, reassuring truth, rightly understood from your word that once saved, once you've worked by your spirit and word and gospel to bring us to repentance and faith and you begin that good work in us, once we're born again and made new creations, nothing can ruin that, nothing can turn it back. We're one of Christ's sheep, and he's going to make sure we make it home to heaven, and we will never, ever perish. But there are some in this room, undoubtedly, who've not really repented and believed, and they're headed to perishing. While the invitation stands yet this morning, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so I pray for that person, for that soul, that they'll come to talk to one of the prayer counselors, one of the pastors this week, a Christian friend. And some of those on the way to perishing might be those who have imagined that because they just went through some gesture of decision, that they got saved. And so I pray, Lord, that we'll let the Bible define what conversion really means. But for believers in you this morning, may they go from here glad and humbly grateful. That once we're saved, we will end up being saved. And that you keep us to the very end. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.